So last week here in Matthew, we did end, obviously, on verse 11, where remarkably, we saw that Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and he overcame those temptations. Which leads us, though, to our passage this week, which starts this way in verse 12. Look again at verse 12. The Bible says, Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And that's significant because remember, we spent a whole week essentially on the John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. And in short, remember, John the Baptist's main calling was to, quote, prepare the way of the Lord. He came to prepare God's people for God himself who was coming. His, his point was to, or his job was to point to the Savior who was soon to arrive. And the reason then that verse 12 is written here by Matthew is, okay, so that was John's purpose and calling to point to Jesus. And therefore, when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, well, it's then that Jesus really fully began his public ministry. And why? Well, because Jesus knows that with John being imprisoned, John's ministry of preparation, if you will, is basically over. And we will learn later in Matthew 14 more about John's imprisonment, but still, Jesus knows that with John's imprisonment, he sees this as proof that his time has finally arrived. The way of the Lord has been prepared. The the mighty one whose sandals, remember John said he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie. He's about to walk around. The pointer has now given way to the point himself. And so that's where we are in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus' full public ministry, which lasted for around three years, and which ultimately is going to bring him to the cross. It's about to begin. And so that's where we are, but that then leads us to our outline for how we'll go through this passage of scripture together this morning. So as you can see in the formatting of your Bibles, there's basically three different paragraphs here, and they all center around Jesus as his ministry begins. And so for us, we'll also have three sections together this morning, all centering around Jesus's early ministry. And so three sections, and that's for what we'll see in them. First, we'll see the Bible tell us who Jesus is according to the Old Testament as he begins his ministry, and that'll be verse. 12 through 16. And then second, we'll see what Jesus says and does as he begins his ministry. And that'll be verses 17 through 22. Which then third and finally will lead us to look at what Jesus' ministry just overall looked like at the beginning of his ministry. And that'll be verses 23 through 25. So in summary, three sections all centering around Jesus' public early ministry. First, who he was according to the Old Testament. Second, what he says and does. And then third, what his ministry looked like overall. But all that said, church, let's then begin our first section here again. We're going to see who Jesus is according to the Old Testament as he begins his ministry. And for this, we're going to be in verses 12 through 16. And I do know that in many translations, probably the one you're reading, verse 17 is often included here. But remember, paragraph divisions were added much later. And I do think verse 17 will fit better in our second section. But anyways, so this section is verses 12 through 16. And we're going to take this now in two steps. First, we're just going to see what happened in history. And then we'll see what Matthew and what God through Matthew says about what happened. And so first, let's start with just verses 12 and 13. See what happened in history. So look down at your Bibles again, verse 12 again, and verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And we'll stop there for now. So again, John the Baptist is imprisoned, and therefore Jesus withdraws into Galilee. And as for Galilee, remember, Galilee was the northern region of Israel, further away from Judah and Jerusalem. And knowing that, it is interesting that Jesus would basically decide to begin his ministry here in Galilee. Because the place that we'd probably assume that if God were to come and the Messiah King were to come, we'd assume that the place where he'd choose to start his ministry would be, well, first where more people are. But then especially we'd think he'd start his ministry in the center of where the Jewish religion was. Right in the region of Judea and in the city of Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't begin there. Instead, Jesus withdraws and begins his ministry in Galilee, specifically in the city of Capernaum. And so that's what happened in history. And I know that might seem like a small deal to us, but like everything that Jesus did, he did this on purpose. Because again, he could have started his ministry in Jerusalem, but he didn't. And so why? Well, that's where the rest of the section comes in. So now look down at verses 14 through 16. Verses 14 through 16. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. So on this Old Testament quote. This is actually Isaiah 9 verses 2 and 3. And if that chapter, Isaiah 9, sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the same chapter and the same prophecy which we often talk about at Christmas time. Because this is the same prophecy that also says in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is a famous chapter for us, and it was a famous prophecy for them back then. But why specifically does Matthew say Jesus' starting in Galilee fulfills this Old Testament passage? Well, to answer that, now just quickly look at who's talked about in this Old Testament passage and what is said to happen to them, right? Who and what? Because as for who, well, obviously, this Old Testament passage here is, quote, talking about people in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And that makes sense because those, in case you don't know, are just ancient tribes in Israel. And therefore, this is essentially talking about Israelites. And so, who is this promise for in Isaiah? Well, the promise is for Israelites. And yet, notice, that's not all who this promise is for here. Because who else is talked about here? Well, now notice that second line of verse 15. Because there, this promise is also for those beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. Because just so you know, the word Gentiles and nations are the same word in the biblical language. And therefore, who is this promise for? Well, it's for the Jews, of course, but it's also for people beyond the Jews in places like Galilee of the nations. And so that's who this promise for. But now moving on, what is the promise that is made to these people? 
Well, from now, for that, you can especially focus on verse 16. Because what do we see there? Well, in short, you heard it. We see that imagery of how people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Or again, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's the promise. And bringing that all together then, you can see it. Matthew's point is, that's then what was fulfilled when Jesus came. Light, a great light came to those in darkness. And that light came not just for the Jewish people, but also for the nations. And, and specifically then, think about it, con- connecting this to what Jesus then decided to do in history, this means that Jesus, as he began his ministry, he intentionally went further away from the religious center to those who were known more as outcasts in Israel, and he even went to the Gentiles, to Galilee, to the nations in a sense. And why? Well, Matthew is saying Jesus intentionally did that. He went to those in darkness to fulfill this text, but also, also that Jesus' light, which was dawning, could shine even more in the darkness. And that shows us something about Jesus in this gospel, doesn't it? Because to be clear, this doesn't mean that the people back then, say in Jerusalem, didn't need Jesus as much because they were already light or anything like that. We know that's not true because they're also in darkness. And yet still, what this does show us is that it's Jesus himself. And when he decides to start his ministry, he specifically goes to those who were known more to be in darkness. He went to those further away from the typical religion of the day, also that his light may be even more evident. And that shows us Jesus' heart, a heart that we're going to continue to see throughout this Gospel of Matthew. And this is helpful for you and I to consider because the truth is we sometimes think that because Jesus is the light, right? Or more generally, we think that because God is perfect and God is the light, we think that that must mean that he wants to avoid all darkness. We think that God being light means that he can't be around darkness. And yet in Jesus here, we see the opposite. Because yes, while it is true that God is perfectly holy, and in a sense the Bible says he can't dwell with darkness, it is also true that Jesus, our God, the light here, specifically comes (laughs) to enter into the darkness. Or to say it another way, the light didn't come to earth to walk around and seek out other smaller lights that he could find to see if he could hang out with them. Because such smaller lights don't exist. (laughs) Because we're all sinners in darkness. Rather, the light, Jesus, he descends from heaven specifically to dawn on those dwelling in darkness. Which in a way shows us not only who Jesus is, but this imagery of light and darkness really does show us really about what this good news of Jesus is. What the gospel is. Because just real quickly, what also this imagery of light and darkness shows us is that, think about it, if we all dwell in darkness and are dark ourselves, and if Jesus is the dawning of the great light, well, what then does that show us about what we need? Or better yet, if we're dark, what does that show us about our way of rescue or salvation or deliverance from our darkness and from the world's darkness? Well, if that's all true, then it shows us that above all, 
What we all need is the light. <laughs> That's it. It shows us that the good news, the answer, the solution to our issue and the world's issue is the light. It's Jesus. And that's, that's really it. And, and that means that the answer to our darkness isn't that we need to somehow muster up the willpower on our own to be more religious or be more moral or be good enough or be bright enough ourselves. No, not at all. Instead, we above all, we need the light. <laughs> We need Jesus. And that's Christianity. And that's the gospel of Jesus in a nutshell. Because now, yes, it is true that once we genuinely trust in Jesus and know the light of Jesus, then there is a place for our light which comes from Jesus to shine into the world. And we're actually going to see Jesus talk about that in famously Matthew chapter 5 to come. But above all, let's be clear. Christianity is, and the good news of Jesus is, I'm dark but in my darkness, the light has dawned. I have seen and I have been saved by the light himself. And so that's our first section and who Jesus is according to the Old Testament as he begins his ministry. But that now leads us on to continue into our second section. And now here, we'll be in verses 17 through 22 and see what Jesus says and does as he begins his ministry. And for this, we'll first look at verse 17 and then we'll look at that paragraph in 18 through 22. And so to begin, now just look down at verse 17. So the light has come, which leads Matthew in the Bible to continue on saying this. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this verse is almost a section on its own in a way because it summarizes what Jesus' main message as he begins his ministry is. And what was it? Well, it was, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now on that sentence, we could spend a long time, but we won't this morning only because if you remember, we literally broke that statement down in detail only a few weeks ago. And we did so because remember, when John the Baptist arrived on the scene in Matthew 3 verse 2, this same sentence, exact same sentence was his message. And so if you want to hear more about what every phrase in this sentence means, you can go listen to that message from a few weeks ago. But in short, to rehash what it means, well first, is that idea of repent. Repent. And really, most literally, that is a word that means change, turn, be different. It actually isn't a word that mainly means feel sorry or just change your mind. Instead, it is a word that means transformative change. A radical new direction of life. And so that's the command from Jesus. And then second though, why does Jesus command that? Well, repent for because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, and so putting those two together, you can see the idea is change, be different, turn, because the kingdom of heaven is here. And now, as we talked about last time with John the Baptist, breaking it down like that, especially knowing that that word repent means change, be radically different, that may sound really strange to us. Because we know that in itself, that isn't the full good news. And because we know that we can't change like that on our own. But that's sort of the point. <laughs> because think about it. This command then from Jesus, repent. 
because God's kingdom is here, was mainly supposed to make them, and it's mainly supposed to make us realize, man, I do need change. Man, I do want to turn in my life in so many ways. I do want to enter God's kingdom, but I, but I can't do any of that on my own. And that's then supposed to lead us to Jesus. <laughs> But anyway, so that's the first and overall thing that Jesus says and does as he begins his ministry. That leads us to what he does next. And for this, now look at that paragraph in verses 18 through 22. Look down your Bibles, 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so first, concerning what Jesus does here, it's, inter- it's interesting because in basic, right, he decides to go and right away get some disciples. Get some disciples. And I, and I know, we all know that Jesus had disciples during his ministry. But have you ever considered how interesting it is that he did? Because remember, we already know from Matthew so far, Jesus is God. He is the promised Savior. And therefore, we could imagine that he just do this ministry thing by himself. That sure, he might gain some followers along the way, but it didn't need to be that he'd necessarily go out of his way to choose certain people to be close with him. And yeah, that is exactly what he did. Which shows us, I think, that in Jesus' mind, he he even wanted to exemplify to us, brothers and sisters, that we're to do this with one another. That we're to do this with one another. Which is also why this same Jesus who called his disciples here, will, literally, will later tell his disciples of his plan that he's going to call the church, where we're also to follow him with one another, right, together. But anyway, so that's what Jesus did here. He, he first goes and calls disciples. But, but further here, how did he actually do that? Well, that's what this paragraph is mainly about. Because as you heard, and as you've probably heard this story before, twice in the short paragraph, Jesus basically goes out to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He finds a pair of fishermen brothers. He tells them to follow him, and they do so. Right, that's it. It's, it's pretty amazing. Right, Peter and Andrew, they, they leave, and they, they hear, they leave, and they follow Jesus. And then James and John, they hear him, they leave, and they follow Jesus. And so that's what happened, and that's in a way how Jesus did it. Now, as for why it happened this way, well, briefly, just consider with me two things on these stories. Two things. First, the overarching thing to be amazed at and to take away from these stories is how Jesus clearly commanded them to follow and then immediately it happened. Right? You see that? Commanded and it happened. And really, if there's one thing that's unique in how these stories are written, I think that's what Matthew is trying to get across. Because to be honest, we know that it was a little more complicated than merely a command and response. Because to be honest, we we know that because it's Luke himself who, who in the Gospel of Luke tells us that this is probably the story, you probably know it, where Jesus does that miracle where he tells Simon to cast his net on the side of his boat and then Simon Peter catches a bunch of fish and then he's amazed at Jesus. 
right? And so that probably did happen between the lines here. And yet notice, in God's word, Matthew leaves all of that out. (laughs) And why? Well, again, to emphasize that really or ultimately what happened here is that Jesus commanded something and then that something happened. (laughs) Because Jesus commanded, follow me. And so what did they do? Well, twice, immediately, they're said to follow him. And now going even deeper as to why it happened like that, honestly, I think this is here because think about it, the idea of someone commanding something and then it right away happening should sound familiar in the Bible. It should sound familiar because ask yourself, who else speaks and commands and then it happens in the Bible? Well, God himself. God himself. And I personally do think that that's implied in how Matthew's writing this because from page one of our Bibles, what do we know about God? Well, God speaks, and then what he speaks comes to pass. Like, let there be light, and there was light. (laughs) And so it is here. You, You can see it. Jesus says, follow me, and immediately they followed. And now, why can he do that? Well, because, brothers and sisters, this really is Emmanuel. (laughs) This is God with us. And so that's the first thing to notice here. But then second, and we don't want to skim past this, this is the promise, though. You can see the promise, though, that Jesus also tells his disciples here. The promise, and that's that famous, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so what does that mean? Well, what most people don't know is that Jesus didn't just use this language because they happen to be fishermen. That is true. But also, this fishers of men is actually a reference to something significant in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16. Because listen to this. So in Jeremiah 16, God's people in history are about to be exiled because of their sin. But then, in that context, God promises that he will one day get his people back. And so knowing that, now hear how this verse, Jeremiah 16, verse 16, easy to remember sounds. So God says this in the Old Testament about getting his people back. Quote, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Meaning, God's people. And, and that's then what Jesus is promising his disciples here. He, he's taking the Old Testament idea of God will get his people back. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that they not only get to be a part of that and that they can follow him and be his disciples, but also amazingly, Jesus is promising them that he will make them part of those fishers whom God will use to get others to follow him as well. And so that's the second section here. And really then, taking the section as a whole and just applying it to us, if you think about it, all of this in a way, in a quick summary, is a good picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. Because first, being a disciple of Jesus means that above all, we follow Jesus, right? Jesus, who is the authoritative, powerful, loving creator God who speaks and warrants our obedience. And then second, though, being a disciple means that we don't do it alone, right? We're in it together. 
But then finally, even that's not it because third and amazingly, also what we see here is that being a disciple of Jesus, I hope you know, means that we also are swept up into Jesus' goal of fishing for others as well. Because God has his people and he will get them back. But how will he do so? How does Jesus do so? Well, he uses his disciples. He uses us, church, to get others to come in on this as well. And so that's our second section. That now finally leads us to our third and last section together this morning. And now for this, we'll be in those verses 23 through 25. And we're just going to see what Jesus' overall ministry looked like. And we say it that way because what we're going to see now is Matthew, for the first time, is going to give us an overall glimpse of what Jesus' regular daily ministry looked like. And, and so to see it, now look at verses 23 through 25. So Jesus is the light. He's preaching. He's got some disciples Which leads Matthew to explain his ministry like this. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So that's a summary of Jesus' early ministry. And to just break that down, let's take it verse by verse. And so first, just look at verse 23 again. Verse 23. Because there, Matthew basically categorizes Jesus' ministry as as consisting of two main things. Two main things. First, Jesus' ministry consisted of, quote, teaching in their synagogues. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Right? And we can group those two verbs together, teaching and proclaiming, because they're both about what Jesus said. Right? And quickly, just just so you know, the New Testament often then from here on out uses these two terms together for Jesus, for his apostles, and even for what is supposed to happen among God's people today. Right? Teach and proclaim. And they're different, but they're also very related, which is why they're both used here to describe Jesus. Because first, as for that idea of teaching, that word, as you can hear, simply more has an emphasis on explaining or instructing. And that's a big part of what Jesus did in his ministry. And especially, as you can see, he did that in the synagogues. And today, that is still to happen among God's people. And that's why a big part of our worship service is what is happening right now this morning. Because honestly, my calling as a pastor is to, Lord willing, like Jesus, teach and explain God's word. Right? Instruct, if you will, concerning what God's word means. And so that's teaching. That's what Jesus did. Jesus taught. But that's not it. Because then also, along with teaching, Matthew here says that Jesus proclaimed the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. And now that word proclaim in Greek is the same exact word which our Bibles in English often translate as preach. Although although personally I think proclaim is probably better these days because preach can have such a negative connotation sometimes. But either way, proclaiming is another speaking word, right? But while it includes teaching, it more specifically emphasizes, well, proclaiming, announcing, declaring something to be true, And in fact, this ancient word was the word that was used back then of heralds who were sent by their kings to go and tell the people something that's true from the king. 
And so the point is, Jesus did that as well. He, he taught and he proclaimed the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Or to say it most simply, Matthew first says here in verse 23 that if, that if you were to go back and encounter Jesus' daily, regular ministry, you'd notice that a lot of it focused on what Jesus said. All right, but that's not all that's here. Because then second, Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry by also saying that Jesus was, quote, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And now it's quite important that that is listed second in this list. And this is common in the gospel accounts. Jesus teaches, proclaims, and that's accompanied by miracles and healings of all sorts of diseases. And concerning Jesus' healings, here's where if we had more time, we could get much deeper into this. And if you have some questions, I'd love to talk to you after the service. But in summary, in terms of just Jesus' healing ministry, a few things should be said, a few things. And to begin, it needs to be said clearly that Jesus' healing ministry was real. He, he truly and amazingly in this world healed people. But it was secondary to his teaching ministry. Secondary to his teaching ministry. And I know that might sound weird or like I'm downplaying these amazing miracles that Jesus did, but I just want you to know that it's quite clear in the gospel accounts that this was the case. And in fact, there's even a time in the gospel according to Mark where Jesus says clearly, quote, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach or proclaim there also because that is why I came out. And so primarily, Jesus was about what he said. His, his ministry centered around proclaiming the gospel and then obviously accomplishing the gospel, the good news. But, but why then, right, did Jesus heal so much? Well, for two reasons, two reasons. First and most basic, well, it was because, let's be really clear, Jesus really did love people. And, and he really did, in history, bring the blessing of his kingdom to people. And, and this was a big deal. And it, and it really makes sense, if you will, that this happened. Because think about it. If the only reason for sickness and disease and sorrow and even death in our world exists because of the fall and because of sin that was brought in. And we know that that is true of our universe because of Genesis 3. And so if that is true, then think about it. If then the one who was going to deal with sin once and for all were to come. If then the one who was going to reverse the curse were to come. If, if the one who was to eventually bring about a whole renewed perfect relationship were to come, well then guess what he'd probably do? <laughs> well, often he would heal and forgive, and restore, and start to show that he is going to make all things new, because that is who he is. And in short, that is exactly what Jesus did. And that's what we should see in these healings. The king, the savior, the renewer, the ultimate reverser and rescuer of all diseases and sorrow and death. He's arrived on the scene here. And so whenever he wanted, out of love, he let that show. He loved people and he temporarily, if you will, reversed the curse for them and their sicknesses, which is amazing. And to be clear, brothers and sisters, he can do, still do that for us today. And one day he will come back 
and he will permanently heal each of his people from all of our diseases, and he will heal this universe from all sickness and sorrow forever. But anyway, so that's the first reason Jesus healed. But then second, why else did he heal? Well, second, he also healed to further prove that his message was true. To further prove that his message was true. And I know that doesn't sound as exciting, but it's also actually a big deal in the Bible. And just so you know, that's almost always the main reason for miracles in the Bible as a whole. They come to confirm God's word. They come to confirm God's message. Because large group of miracles are actually rare for the most part in the Bible and in history as they really only occur in three main periods in the story of your Bible. Three main periods. Because think about it. First, many miracles in the Bible happened during the time of Moses and Joshua. And we know their miracles mainly existed to prove the word, the new word, the law that was being delivered first from Moses to Pharaoh and then Moses to his people as they're entering the promised land. And then though, there's not as many miracles. And then second, this large group of miracles happened hundreds of years later with Elijah and Elisha. And again, their miracles very clearly existed to prove to the rebellious kings and rebellious Israel at the time that they should listen to God. And then finally, the last period of large groups of miracles in the Bible, it occurs with Jesus and his apostles and the early church. And why? Well, again, to prove that this new message of the gospel was and is true. And the point is, that's then also why Jesus healed and he did so many miracles. And now again, please don't hear me wrong, it doesn't mean that this is taking away from how amazing these miracles were or how they were examples of love or the power of the kingdom they were. But also think about it, what mainly did these people need more than their temporary physical healing? And what does anyone today need above temporary physical healing? Well, the gospel, the the spoken good news of how we can be okay and loved and right with God now and forever by grace alone through faith in what Jesus did alone. And so Jesus healed and his apostles healed. And I do believe that Jesus, of course, can still heal today. But why? Well, mainly to prove that he, the healer, is also the eternal Savior. And so that's verse 23 in the main summary of Jesus' ministry. But that then leads us much more briefly to look again at verses 24 and 25. And so with that covered, now let's just see the result. This really happened in history, so what's the result of that? Look at verse 24 again. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And so think about it. What is the result of Jesus' proclaiming and teaching and healing ministry? Well, I hope you know, Jesus really was famous. And not only that, but Matthew is clear that his fame spread even, quote, throughout all Syria, which is outside of Israel. And then because of that, of course, more and more people came and were healed by him of all sorts of diseases and demonic oppression. Which then finally leads us again to verse 25. And this is how Matthew 4 ends. And so look down one last time this morning, Matthew 4, 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so now here, again, what's emphasized is that these people are from all over. 
Right, you can see that. They're from Galilee, the Decapolis, which just means 10 cities. They're from Jerusalem. They're from Judea. But not even that. That's not all that's here. Because then finally, what actually makes verse 25 unique and how this now will start to apply to us is how, notice, it's not just people from all over here, but now it's great crowds who are said to follow Jesus because of this. Do you notice that language? It's the same word from earlier in our account. Great crowds followed him. And really, that's then the picture that Matthew ends us with. And that's Jesus' early ministry. Jesus teaches, proclaims, heals. And there's great crowds now that are following him from all over. And now for us, that picture is supposed to make us feel a little bit of tension. A little bit of tension, right? Because as Christians, we should know and realize that, okay, so we know who Jesus is. He's the king, he's the savior, he's God, and therefore to us, it does make sense that as he began his ministry, as as he was teaching and doing miracles, people were interested, right? There was clearly a a buzz going around, a, a buzz all over the region about Jesus, and yet, what you and I also know is that this whole story is going to climax with Jesus being killed, right? And that is the irony, if you will, in verse 25, And that's again why we're supposed to hear this and feel a bit of tension. Because Jesus is doing what he's doing and it is exciting. Right? Even for people today, that is still how they feel about Jesus. Right? He sounds like a great teacher or he's a good example of love in many ways. And and for most people, they want his gifts. Right? Everyone wants to be healed by Jesus if he can or, and no one really wants to go to hell. And yet back then, let's just realize for most people in these crowds, they ultimately will prove that they do not want Jesus himself. And sadly, still today, so many people who follow Jesus in time prove they don't really want Jesus himself. And not only that, but to really bring this home, specifically here in Matthew, just so you know, the same word here in verse 25 that Matthew uses for crowds It is the same word that he's going to use a few times in chapters 25 and 26 to describe the group of people who are going to cry out for Jesus to be crucified. (laughs) The crowds. Which shows us that yes, Jesus had many followers, but in the end, most people didn't actually want him. So that's our passage, church. It is how Jesus' ministry begins with him being the light dawning in darkness and then he gathered his first disciples and then that passage ends with Jesus doing so much in his ministry and great crowds following him. And so for us now as we close, let's just obviously take what we saw here and and love and trust Jesus more and specifically though, let's take what we saw here in Matthew 4 this morning and make it our aim to follow Jesus more in our lives. Follow Jesus. Because church, that that is the overall application here, to follow Jesus. And yet when we say that, we have to be careful, right? Because we don't want to just follow Jesus because of his miracles or because he sounds exciting like these crowds. Let's be careful to not just follow Jesus because we think that he'll give us whatever we want in our lives, right? Like some cosmic genie. Instead, let's follow Jesus because he's called us, And because we know who he actually is, let's follow Jesus because we love him and we love what he did for us in the gospel, bringing us by his grace into the kingdom of God. Because remember, as for us, 
We all are on our own or dwelling in darkness apart from him. We're all living in the shadow of death. But Jesus is the great light who dawned in our darkness. He is the savior we need. He is the king who lovingly rules and guides us. And he therefore is worthy of following day in and day out and literally forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.